You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, Today, I am joined with uh, Dr. Kevin Spellman, one of my good friends, mentors, colleagues. Very excited to have you here today, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, totally. Um, Just to start us off a little bit, just to help our listeners understand who you are and the type of work you do. Usually I tell people you're primarily a phytochemist. Um, You understand a lot about plant chemistry and as well as how compounds and plants interact with the body. Uh, Would you say that's a fair assessment? I'd say that's a fair assessment. Uh, um, People tend to stick me in the chemist um, box a lot. I, I think of myself as a biologist because I'm fascinated by um, the way that plants affect our physiology, and I'm fascinated by that pharmacology. So um, by training a molecular biologist, but yeah, I, I, I definitely have uh, spent a lot of time looking at molecules and looking at them in the lab and playing with them in the lab and looking at analytical chemistry results. And <laughs> Yeah, same here. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's very similar to me. I get pinned in the chemistry box these days because of all the analytical chemistry work I do, but at my heart, I'm a biologist and, and really more so an ecologist than anything else. But I think ecology translates really well um, to um, pharmacology in very interesting ways. It's so true. And, and until there is this thin veil between them right now that keeps um, our lobbying efforts on more ecological and environmental standards from really being heard, once the medical community joins the ecological community and the environmental community, we're going to have a much stronger voice. And that needs to happen Mm. soon because as we poison the planet, we're, of course, poisoning ourselves. Right. And not to mention just on a totally sort of anthropocentric uh, perspective, losing potential um, novel compounds we haven't discovered yet. Um, I think there's a lot of times a false perception that we already know a lot (laughs) about um, nature and, and these compounds that are in plants and, and, and fungi and, and even in people and that there's not a lot left to discover. And I try to explain to people that couldn't be further from the truth. I, I completely agree with you. We are, uh, I think as scientists, sometimes we're quite arrogant in what we think we know and forget about the dark uh, knowledge that we can't see yet and that we don't know. Um, a really good example that you, you brought up, uh, you know, losing compounds because we're losing plant species. We lose about a plant species a day. Yeah. And we've only researched about 6% of all the plant species on the planet. <laughs> so what did we lose today, right? Was it a cure for uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma or, you know, HIV or, uh, yeah. So we've got a lot of work to do. And I, I want to say the number of Estimate of plant species is something around a half a million. I could, that's a fuzzy number for me, but uh, mm-hmm. 6% of those is all we've done. Yeah. It's a long, long way to go. A long for way sure. to go. Yeah, totally. Um, well, uh, to jump into the cannabis side of things, uh, do you mind describing? I know you've done um, some research in the past uh, around the endocannabinoid system um, and a lot of work which I want to spend a lot of time talking to you about today, about plant synergies and compounds in other plants other than cannabis that interact with the endocannabinoid system. I know you've done a lot of work with echinacea. Um, And so do you mind um, just talking a little bit about some of that that research that you've done and 
kind of see where that conversation goes? Sure. Well, let's let's start with the endocannabinoid system. Um, I, I did have an opportunity to look at some signaling going on there, CB1 and CB2. Um, that's not to say that the endocannabinoid system is only CB1 and CB2. That's, I think, a misunderstanding that is frequently... Um, uh, What's the right word here? That's a misunderstanding that is frequently um, used to talk about an endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. But the endocannabinoid system is really fascinating. I, I look at look at it as as a lipid signaling network. That if we were to, to diagram if we were to diagrammatically um, look at it, I would say that it's at the bottom of a pyramid, and everything else. Neuro neurological system, cardiovascular system, immuno immunological system, all of those are stacked on top of it. And therefore, that foundation endocannabinoid system affects everything that's sitting on top of it. So it has this huge role in signaling throughout the body. And I think that's really, really key. And so it's so much more than just the enzymes that are, that are synthesizing and mm -hmm. breaking down cannabinoids and the uh, receptors that, that are directly considered uh, uh, cannabinoid receptors, such as CB1, CB2. There's, you know, now there's a putative CB3. Mm -hmm. um, there's, it looks like there's probably a CB4 and a CB5 at this point, but it's too early to actually call them that. But there are a lot of compounds that, uh, excuse me, there are a lot of receptors that actually bind our endocannabinoids as well as the um, exogenous cannabinoids mm -hmm. in, in our body. Yeah, and are you referring to like a lot of those G protein coupled receptors? Yeah, um, GPCRs exactly. Yeah, and then you've got the ion channels that are coupled to receptors. So the the whole trip receptor system is really fascinating and um, makes a huge difference in terms of pain and sensation, um, as well as uh, you know just gut health mm -hmm. and and uh, neurological health. And so there's yeah, it's. It's a very pleiotropic uh, system that affects so many different subsystems or tissues throughout the body. Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny, the more research that goes into the endocannabinoid system and looking at these G-protein-coupled receptors that endocannabinoids um, interact with and everything, it's just the definition is getting wider and wider and wider. And while a lot of cannabis education is still on that, okay, the endocannabinoid system is CB1, CB2, these enzymes, you know, um, these ligands, uh, which for anyone listening that doesn't understand what the word ligand means, that's just um, any uh, compound that, that interacts with another receptor, we call those ligands, kind of simplified definition of that. Um, um, but it is important for people to understand the endocannabinoid system is very um, broad, and the TRPV1, the TRPV1, uh, um, and the all the other TRPV1, um, ion channels, uh, those are starting to get um, investigated. TRIP-V1 is now pretty much considered an intimate part of the endocannabinoid system, and a lot of um, newer papers are coming out, but it is much wider. Um, it's it's tricky because when you're talking to a lay audience that isn't familiar with a lot of yeah. um, medical science and all of that, you kind of have to keep it simple. And how How would you describe molecular signaling to someone that um, is sort of new to trying to understand what the endocannabinoid system is, what a receptor is, what 
um, what a ligand is, all these sort of things. How would you describe that system? Because normally it gets described as like a lock and key model, which we now know is not appropriate. Yeah, th thanks for saying that. I'm, I'm so tired of hearing about the lock and key model, <laughs> and we're, we're hearing it from a lot of marketing now in, in, in um, the cannabis industry. But the lock and key model, that old model was there was, you know, the one key fits one lock, and that could be, uh, nothing could be further from the truth in, in terms of that. We're finding that um, receptors tend to be promiscuous, if you will, uh, especially, I spent a lot of time looking at these receptors, uh, orphan nuclear receptors. Mm. Inside the nucleus, the PPAR receptors, PPAR gamma is so incredibly promiscuous that it, two different molecules, two different ligands can fit in there at the same time. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. So, and that's, uh, by the way, is also considered part of the endocannabinoid mm -hmm. system now is the, is the PPARs, these orphan nuclear receptors. And they're called orphans because the original ligands uh, were the exogenous, excuse me, the endogenous ligands were never really established. Um, there's definitely some deep insights into what they are or could be. But when you hear that orphan, it means that we don't really know what the endogenous compound uh, that relates to that receptor mm. is. So... Yeah, I think we have, uh, I agree with you completely. It just keeps getting broader and broader, and it's gone well beyond CB1, CB2, FA, MAGL, you know, uh, those enzymes. And uh, it's an exciting time to, to think about it. In terms of signaling, coming back there, um, how does signaling happen carefully, number one? Uh, <laughs> it is very uh, um, orchestrated in, in a very profound way that I don't think most people realize. And, and so that, that first piece there that, that it's orchestrated, I wanna to refer to this idea of it's a network. And this really comes from a lot of uh, ecology understanding where mm -hmm. we look at ecosystems and we understand that they're very complicated networks. You can't just introduce rabbits into it, right? Or mm -hmm. whatever it was. Or pull else. something out. Yeah, you yeah. can't pull something out or put a species in. In the same sort of way, you can't block a enzyme or a receptor system without having profound implications on the rest of the network. So genes, receptors, enzymes, um, all of these com all these targets, as we call them in pharmacology, respond to uh, messenger molecules is a term that I really love because it makes it really clear what these molecules do. Each molecule carries a message. And so these molecules, usually bind more than one site, and that's something that's misunderstood mm -hmm. as well. And because of, and by the way, then their metabolites, they're broken down by enzymes, and then those metabolites of those yes. molecules then can bind other sites. So we have this incredible network that um, uh, I, th I like to think of it as, as uh, network pharmacology. There's this model now that I think is really starting to embrace medicinal plants in a way that couldn't be embraced when we were looking at one target, one mm -hmm. ligand model. So signaling is incredibly complex. It's orchestrated. It's, it's about harmony. It's about this, all these signals happening simultaneously and sequentially, and therefore having a response that makes sense to the body. And without that, without that complex network signaling that includes upregulating and downregulating genes, includes upregulating and downregulating receptors, includes upregulating up and downregulating enzyme systems, without all of that, we would be puddles of slime on the floor. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, literally, it's 
you uh if that intimate i like the the orchestration model the sort of orchestra or symphony yeah. of activity that's going on um yeah if things don't come together um you can't even um think straight or perceive properly um you know there's a number of different things besides just like bodily functions not working um well an an example i I've, I've talked about before but i i think illustrates the sensitivity of messing with these systems is uh did you hear about the study that was done in france a few years ago uh, where they tried to do a it was an faah yeah. uh, blocker of a, a uh, inhibitor yeah it ended up um sending someone several people to the hospital one guy brain dead yeah. um went majorly wrong um and there's been some follow-up studies to try to figure out why it went wrong because the rodent models made it seem like it should have been no problem which I don't know if that's something you want to comment on at all, because um, there's a, a lot of cannabis research currently. Um, a lot is either cell culture studies that are looking at how cannabinoids are interacting with certain tissues or cell types or, you know, uh, different proteins like receptors um, or the rodent models and results are, are getting scaled. And um, particularly this issue has come up. Um, just in the past couple of days, uh, Forbes released uh, an article about CBD, and the headline said something like, uh, researchers find CBD causes liver damage. Very broad title. Um, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and I wondered, you know, are they talking about the cytochrome P450 stuff? What are, you know, what yeah. are they re referencing? And um, so I went and looked up the study, and, you know, it was a rodent study, and they ended up um, taking... Uh, their lowest dose of CBD that they gave the rodents was allometrically scaled um, based on the highest doses that went through the Epidiolex trials. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram body weight, um, scaling that down um, to rodents, that was their starting dose. And then they did doses that were three times and 10 times that. And what they found is in the doses that were three times and 10 times, um, they saw some pretty significant liver damage that started to occur in the rodents, um, particularly in the 10X model. They were feeding these rodents two grams of CBD per kilogram of body weight. Holy cow. Yeah, over over two grams. Um, and then the, then a journalist blows it up into, oh my God, my hair's on fire. <laughs> right, yeah. And it, it's something that um, myself and several other people on social media that try to do um, science education um, and particularly around cannabis, tried to actually post the article and say, no, actually read the research study uh, because the authors even talk about, um, you know, something that you and I have talked about before, uh, super physiological doses. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, while these effects occur in most real life scenarios, you're unlikely to encounter them because most people aren't consuming that much. But um, um, is that something you can comment on at all? Just the, some of the, nuances that people should be aware of when they're looking at studies that are using rodents versus humans, how that scaling occurs. and Yeah, so um, let me tell you a story that shocked me. I, I was running a, a R&D group that was a company, it was a billion-dollar company, so they had money and they had resources. In fact, my research budget was $10 million, and there had been a nutritionist there for many years um, that uh, Apparently, was doing the dosing on on any of the any of the they they did this company did multivitamins so mm -hmm. he would figure out the dosing. And so when I asked him, he he mentioned a study to me and I said, "What is the HED human equivalent dose?" And he gave me a blank look. Now he had been there for over ten years, 
determining this company's dosing. And I said, human equivalent dose? He, Do you know what that is? He said, no, I've never heard of that. So he had been determining all of his dosing based on animal models. And of course, the human equivalent dosing models are based on either surface area mm -hmm. or meta metabolic rate. And hopefully they're based on both, and that'll give you a more accurate uh, read of, of what the right dose might be for a human in an animal model. But he had never heard of this, and so I sent him all these papers on human equivalent dose that I had on my hard drive, and uh, he never mentioned it again because I think he was incredibly embarrassed that he'd been determining d d do yeah. doses based on animal studies that were not relevant to humans. So there's a first piece. is like people tend to, you know, if it was two grams a, a kilogram, they tend to just multiply that times 65 or seven. Actually, the average human now is over 65, Yeah, uh, at least in the US, um, kilograms. So they tend to do that, and that's wrong. Uh, met metabolically, I think a mouse, is, its metabolic rate is seven times faster than a human, and I think um, rats are 11 times, and then you've got surface area to deal with as well. So those doses tend to change pretty significantly. Um, but coming back to the animal model, yeah, I think we have to be really careful when we're looking at doses. Basically, anything over about 50, uh, 50 milligrams per kilogram is, is probably not realistic for human use. It's on that cusp, and that's even super high. Mm -hmm. So you get up to something like two grams, I mean, you're toxic. And that would happen with, uh, I mean, look, you can drink too much water and drown, right? Right, right? So anything can be toxic. And that kind of brings us to this idea of hormesis and understanding what hormesis is. And, and this is that idea of a biphasic response that a little does one thing, but a lot does another thing. Mm -hmm. And generally with this horm hormetic response, a little bit of a substance uh, that potentially could be dangerous actually upregulates things like uh, NRF2 or NRF2, it's called, which then launches this whole antioxidant system, protective buffer system. Um, but then if you have a lot of it, it it's toxic. And this is, this is seen throughout all kingdoms, whether it's plants, whether it's animals, whether it's reptiles, whatever it is. And it's, um, there were in the 40s, in the, uh, actually in the 40s is when it started losing favor, but throughout the early 20th century, there were, journals based on this hormesis model. Uh, it wasn't always called hormesis, but there were a number of names for it. So we need to understand that, a so the American way that if one is good is not too better, anything worth doing is worth <laughs> overdoing, right? right That's yeah. not true. And we need to be really careful about that in medicine and food and supplements that a little bit can go a long ways. And when you take more, it doesn't mean you're getting more of the same effect. It may mean that you've gone to the other side of the curve and you're actually getting uh, potentially toxic effects. Yeah, and and this is something that in um, medicinal plant science has been well known that you know there are a lot of different plants that um, uh, may be helpful, but if you're consuming a lot of them every day, um, it's known that you know you start to get liver problems, all sorts of different things. Even um, I was talking to someone recently just about reishi mushroom tinctures, you know, and just explaining like, hey, just understand that like. This isn't something you just consume a lot of all the time and you're going to be super healthy. Like you've got to understand um, the dosaging, understand what you're working with. Um, periodically take some breaks, yeah. let your body kind of reset um, and then pick it up again um, and give your liver a break from having to process, you know, some of these kind of foreign uh, compounds. Uh, that I, sort of I thing. completely agree. The, the idea of drug holidays is 
is should be applied to dietary supplements as well. Yeah. Um, the one thing I would say though, in terms of dosing and dietary supplements, especially on tinctures, look, you got a one ounce bottle, right? And it's often now over fifteen bucks. I've seen them at twenty five bucks. Oh, but in the cannabis industry, they're four times that. Right. Yeah, one hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> for an ounce. Yeah. Right. But um, the doses they have on those bottles usually are subclinical. Yeah. And and so, for example, with echinacea, thirty drops is not going to do it, right? We're mm-hmm. talking we're talking teaspoons, if on the first signs of a cold. Um, but but I completely agree with you. The idea we we need to think of dietary supplements as food items, which is really yes in many ways what they are, and therefore we wouldn't eat nothing but blueberries for five days, right? Straight, we would have judicious amounts in our diet, and that's mm-hmm. how we need to think of dietary supplements. So. You know, one of the things that uh, I think isoflavones is a really good example where um, the isoflavones from beans, and usually people just think soy is the only place, but isoflavones are in mm-hmm. basically almost all legumes, yeah. that these compounds actually bind uh, the, the beta estrogen receptor, and it's at a much lower um, affinity, but they still have a slight estrogen nudge towards the body. So, you know, in, in our diets, maybe 50 milligrams a day was what you could get if you were eating a lot, if you were a Japanese mm-hmm. or uh, an Asian person eating a lot of uh, soy-based foods. But I see supplements with 150 times that, or excuse me, 150 milligrams, mm-hmm. you know, rather than just 50 milligrams. So I worry about that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's weird, like now culturally microdosing is sort of in, but in the 90s and early 2000s, megadosing was really in, and especially around like vitamin C, yeah. um, that was huge, taking mega doses of supplements to try to um, get certain responses that now a lot of research around that mega dosing is not um, upholding some of the initial thoughts of what people thought that might do. Um, well, talking about these other plants, um, let's talk about plant synergy and herbal sure. synergy and the endocannabinoid system, how that all comes together. Um, I think... Um, probably a lot of people listening to this have probably heard of the entourage effect um, that's become really uh, popular in the cannabis space. Um, and a lot of people act like that's a new thing. <laughs> Thanks for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think as you can attest to, it is definitely not a new thing um, and something we've been trying to understand for a long time. And cannabis is kind of bringing that to the forefront. Um um, so can you just kind of describe how you conceptualize these herbal synergies, entourage effects, whatever you want to call them, and then um, I'd like to get into to talking about things like the alkylamides and echinacea and, and other compounds, some of the terpenes that are found in basically every plant right. um, that are interacting with the endocannabinoid system and, um, I don't know, how, how people should think about this because um, it's getting so much hype. Well, I think you used the word um, symphony. Uh, mm-hmm. That's really what I I think the best uh, depiction of this idea of the entourage effect or what we have called for probably longer uh, synergy in, in medicinal plants is a sym- symphonic effect. So think about think about um, think about a Mozart symphony that's so incredibly beautiful. And you have a lead violin. And then you have all these other instruments, mm-hmm. right? And the, all those other instruments basically support that lead violin. Now, 
what's happened in pharmacology is under the illusion, and I will call it an illusion, that we can control the dose, we've isolated the lead violin mm -hmm. and just use that in our pharmacology. Um, and the rationalization for this is actually, if you really go back and look at the science, the rationalization for doing this is actually not very strong scientifically. Um, in the 30s, in the uh, early 20th century, 20s, you had the eclectic physicians doing studies on um, whole plant extracts, and then so in some cases they actually used uh, an isolated constituent. And this is the Lloyd brothers. The eclectic physicians were supported by some brilliant pharmacists called the Lloyd brothers, and the Lloyd brothers were really good extra at extracting. In fact, some of their instrumentation, their chemical uh, instruments are still used today. They invented them to do extractions, and we still use them today in, in, chemi in chemistry labs. So they had this opportunity to look at whole plant extracts versus uh, isolated constituents. And they found in many cases, not always, but they found in many cases that the whole plant extracts were um, had a better outcome. Mm. Now, and I think that's really what we have to look at, because in an isolated model, for example, a cell culture and an animal model, you actually might get a better outcome with an isolated constituent, right? Because you're right. pounding essentially it's pharmacological dosing versus physiological dosing, right. right? So, in physiological dosing, being that idea of using just enough to get the effect you're looking for, minimum effective dose, e yeah, e exactly. And what we end up seeing with this in in healthcare is that everybody's too busy to do that. The patient's too busy to to pay attention because they're going to have to pay attention to where they get the effect. The doctor's too uh, busy to actually put an inquiry into where was that dose that worked for you, mm -hmm. and everybody wants instant relief. So so it's fallen by the wayside, but how, were we to pursue that further, I think we'd have a much more effective model. The other thing that happens here when we look at isolates versus um, whole plant extracts is the, the adverse event profile goes up. Mm -hmm. And this is a huge issue. And for example, in my own body, you know, if I take if I take ginkgo twenty four six, the the standardized stuff, um, I actually end up uh, with a huge diuretic effect. Mm -hmm. I'm running to the bathroom every twenty minutes. Uh, if I just use ginkgo leaf that's thrown in a capsule, I don't have that effect. Yeah, I noticed I noticed the blood flow effect in terms of uh, cognitive function uh, with both of them, but I'd rather use the whole leaf ground up. So we have that lead violin that's that's working. And what we found in reductionist chemistry now is that, oh, there's more than one lead violin. It turns out that the oboe takes a lead <laughs> in this section as well, yeah. right? And oh, it turns out that the cello also ends up having a lead in the... So we have found multiple active constituents. In the case of echinacea, it's been hypothesized that at least three, at least four now compounds are considered the actives. When they came across the CB2 binding of alkyl amides, what happened is everybody thought, oh, we've finally done it. We have found the active in echinacea. Well, not, <laughs> not so fast because yeah. we've got the caffeic acid derivatives, which, by the way, are anti directly antiviral, but incredible antioxidants and potentially uh, block histamine release. Um, by the way, if you're looking at anaphylactic reactions mm -hmm. and, you're, and you're stuck in a pinch. Um, we've also got the, uh, the polysaccharides, the rabinoglactans in echinacea that are also super active and uh, directly stimulate immune function. So that becomes very interesting because here in one plant, you've got something that's a bit of a 
immunodampening uh, effect, the alkalamides, and you've also got something that's a direct immune stimulator, mm-hmm. that's a ribonucleotide, and then you've got something that tends to modulate immune function, that's a caffeic acid derivative. Oh, and by the way, it's antiviral. So we can't simplify plants to one constituent, and that's the mistake that's being being made over and over and over. It started in the 70s with ginseng. People were looking at ginseng and saying, oh, what's the active constituent? And they came upon the ginsenosides or the saponins mm-hmm. of, the, of the plant. And so what, what happened from this ridiculous research in the 70s is there was a time when people would look at plants and if they didn't have alkaloids or they didn't have saponins, <laughs> they were thrown out. No, yeah. they're not active. Yeah. It's all fantasy. No, these tribes using this are not getting any effect. We know best. Right. right. We've studied it. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we could. I could talk about this all day. I've written a couple of chapters on it in, in books and uh, published a couple of paper, papers on Synergy. But the idea that there's only one active compound is really naive when it comes to medicinal plants. And we need to look at it as there is this symphonic effect when every time we swallow a bolus of either a food plant or a medicinal plant, we're getting literally thousands of compounds, and I literally do mean thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the idea that there's only 400 compounds in, in, in cannabis, I think is super naive as well, because if you look at corn and you look at wheat, respectively, there's they have found 3,000 and mm-hmm. 5,000 different compounds in there, and these are probably the most studied plants, right, yeah. analytically. Yeah. And so I can tell you with certain clarity that there's at least 1,000 compounds in probably every single plant as analytical chemistry gets more mm-hmm. and more uh, widens. sensitive, yeah, yeah, it's just going to widen further. So to think that there's only one active uh, compound is delusional. And I think we need to step back and look at this network pharmacology idea where we have multiple um, actives basically nudging a network, not blocking mm-hmm. any one site 100% or not binding with, with great inhibition right. or great agonist activity. Partial agonism, partial it, antagonism. Exa- exactly, yeah. exactly. Partial inhibition. And that that combined effect of multiple nodes in a network being um, nudged has potentially a better outcome and a safer adverse event profile as well. Well, there was there was one study just um, looking at CBD. I believe it was with CBD, looking at isolated CBD, and then um, I think they call it a whole plant extract. Which the way that some of these terms are used in the industry drives me crazy. <laughs> yeah, because you know, in herbalism, the term whole plant extract ha- does have a definition. You're using aerial parts, you're using roots, you know, all these different pieces. If it's an extract just from aerial parts, you say that, you know. Um, but anyway, beyond that, uh, there was a study that showed that with isolated CBD, um, there was a very um, limited therapeutic response profile, and it's pretty much a pretty standard bell curve. Yeah. Um, and that you, um, at a certain dosages, you hit a peak, yep. and then you start getting um, losses in therapeutic efficacy. But when they used um, these more, for lack of a better term, broader spectrum extracts uh, or whatever extract they used that curve turned into a linear line that they started to see better therapeutic outcomes with um, fewer side effects um, and better outcomes at lower dosages Um, but the main thing is that ceiling was seemingly eliminated when they introduced um, an extract versus an isolated compound um, and I can't remember exactly how they measured all of that. Um, I need to go back and pull it. But um, 
that's just it was a TNF alpha study. Was it okay? Yeah, yeah. And so um, that just in a very narrow way um, demonstrates um, the huge difference between isolated compounds and um, extracts that have a broader spectrum of phytochemistry. And it's it's tricky. I want to know your thoughts on so the the traditional model of doing clinical trials and all of this is you know standardized ingredients that are the same every time um you know very tight controls um what's the way forward given that medical science and i i do think this is becoming a more and more popular notion now the idea of network pharmacology understanding that these limitations of isolated compounds uh, the more and more people i talk to um that seems people seem to be accepting that um but the the pushback that I receive is, but how do you study it to get get that included in medicine um, as our systems are set up right now? Um, because it's very hard to get funding to do clinical trials with herbs um, because um, there are much greater limitations into what you're gonna what product you're gonna come out with and market. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, what's what's the way forward to do? Um, research to identify the therapeutic um, potentials and and the limitations of medicinal plants given this model that we're stuck with. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question, and I'm going to give it a really simple answer, but the devil is in the details. And the, the answer is outcomes versus mechanisms. Mm -hmm. um, what we're looking for a lot of times in clinical trials is, of course, we're looking at outcomes, but we really want to understand mechanisms in a way that may not be realistic. And I was actually just at a, at a traumatic brain injury conference, and I suggested the idea that there's dark pharmacology. You know, they were talking about dark data, uh, data that was negative that never got published. I right, turned it on right. its head and said, let's talk about dark pharmacology. Dark pharmacology is pharmacology we can't see yet because we've been looking under the street light, right? Mm -hmm. Looking for our, the drunk that's looking for his keys, right. right? That's what we've been doing in science. We look for what we know and not necessarily, and, and by the way, it's expensive to go off into the weeds right? looking for something. So we, we start thinking we know everything. And I've seen this happen with a lot of medicinal plant studies where, oh, well, St. John's wort doesn't work for depression because it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that. The, the mechanisms that we know about, well, actually, if you look at the outcomes, it actually does work. And so I, th I think one of the answers is really when we can't necessarily standardize the amount of uh, active compound A or mm -hmm. active compound B because they're medicinal plants, we have to look at the outcomes. And I think that's really the key. And there's been a lot of, um, uh, they're starting to happen. Let's not say that there's been a lot of them, but there's more and more of these studies on integrative medicine, complementary alternative medicine, whatever mm -hmm. you want to call yeah. it these days. I just call it uh, medicine myself, but right. um, <laughs> yeah, there's been these studies basically looking at seeing alternative practitioners who do multiple things, right? It's not just one drug or one herb. They're do, you know, They're suggesting this, and I want you to think about that, and I want you to read this book, and I want you to take these three herbal... Uh, compounds that one's a tea and one's a tincture and one's a capsule and they're all doing different things and then you know that confounds the way that we've done research 
And I think the key is outcomes and not necessarily mechanisms. The mechanisms are sexy. And believe me, as a molecular biologist, I'm seduced by molecular modes of activity, right? I want to understand. But it also gives us a false arrogance Yes, um, that we think we know. And in fact, there's so much dark pharmacology right now that we don't know. And we only know what we're, we only know what we know. And we do not know what we do not know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a... There's a massive amount of humility that needs to be had um, exactly. by anyone working professionally in medical science and, and really science broadly. I mean, science has repeatedly been plagued by arrogance, um, and a false sense of, um, yeah, of that understanding of like, oh, I know enough now that now I can run with this and extrapolate to, yeah. you know, the ends of the universe. And In the early 1900s, they wanted to close the patent office, right? Right, yeah. It was like, <laughs> no. The steam engine has been discovered. <laughs> right, we're good now. <laughs> <laughs> and, no, I, I think that's a really good point. And, uh, and to add to that, uh, when I get into discussions about this um, with other people, I talk about um, assigning value to the safety profiles of a lot of these medicinal plants uh, like cannabis and recognizing that, you know, um, we should feel more confident doing that type of research focused on outcomes given the safety profile of these plants and these compounds. Because if nothing else, um, we have a pretty good sense of how toxic a lot of these things are, at least when it comes to LD50s, lethal lethal dosages, and and that sort of thing. And and let me interrupt you there, right there, because I think that's you just brought up a really key point that I I can hear the scientists, not so much, and the medical doctors probably very much saying, safety, what are you talking about? Let's talk about safety for a second here, and I'm going to try not to go off on a rant here. Go for it if you want to. But you end up with um, somewhere between 80,000 to 100,000 people die every year from properly prescribed pharmaceutical medications. And if we have five deaths in a year from dietary supplements, it's blown up all over the news. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you look at the numbers, more people are using dietary supplements than are using pharmacological medications or pharmaceutical medications. So we need to step back and go, this is not a safety issue. It's It's an economics issue. Yeah. We've got the pharma crying foul because they don't, we don't have to do the amount of research from substances that are naturally occurring that most of them have been in our food, in our diet anyway. So, right. you know, they're saying, well, they don't have to do this and that. Well, that's, that's true. And maybe that is something to look at. But to say that they're not safe, I don't think so. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think that's a bullshit reason to limit um, research and, and encouraging people to um, try Fear to f- their dietary supplements. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and to touch on something you said earlier, um, talking about dietary supplements, thinking about them as foods, foods are medicines. And it's important for people to th- recognize that and, and understand like the things you eat, they are chemicals, they're influencing your body, they're triggering all sorts of signaling in the body. Your foods are medicines as well. Um, pharmaceuticals aren't the only medicines or you know uh, standardized supplements and pharmaceuticals are not the only medicines it's everything you consume is a medicine and it's important for people to think critically about what they're consuming broadly Uh, absolutely there's a phrase that i'm going to attribute to jeff bland that i actually uh really like and that is that you steep your genes daily in your dietary broth 
Oh, that's great. Isn't it? Yeah. And if we if we looked at a fast food eater versus somebody who just, you know, had their, their greens and some fruit and um, maybe some nice protein, whether it be vegetable or, or animal-based protein, and we looked at the gene profiles, what's been upregulated and what's been downregulated, mm-hmm. and those two people, they would be completely different. And suddenly you would understand why that fast food eater is going to die 10 years earlier than the other guy is. Right. But we don't do that. Right. Yeah. Well, it's it's fascinating to me that all of the education that goes on, you know, commercials that come on TV um, of health campaigns and everything, uh, it's such a simple message that for some reason isn't coming through that like, hey, your food is also medicine and, you know, trying to encourage that holistic thinking about health and wellness and it's and even in the concept of dietary supplements a lot of people especially in the united states fall into the same sort of thinking of like oh i'm sick i need to take a bunch of supplements um treating it just like they would a pharmaceutical um, and not thinking of like well what's my daily lifestyle what's my daily regimen and how do i incorporate things into my daily routines to support my body as it is and a lot of people aren't even doing you know, going back to these, um, like taking breaks from things, like trying to figure out what your baseline is so that you even know what you're working from. Right. Um, to know what you might need to incorporate. Yeah, into... most people don't know that. Yeah, no, it's it's very challenging. And I mean, I'm as guilty as anyone else, so I want to make that clear. Like, I'm not perfect. <laughs> I eat plenty of fast food and all yeah. sorts of, you know, it's, but it's about developing that awareness and trying to make your decisions be more mindful and just having your whole life be more mindful and trying to be in touch of what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, what's influencing you broadly. And, and that extends beyond just food, but everything, news and media, all sorts of things, what's influencing you, what's building your reality. Um, cause it's all of that, all of that itself is a symphony and orchestra exactly. um, that can be very discordant if you're not yeah. taking that time. Yeah. You, you bring up two really good in, uh, issues here, industry and lifestyle the the industry the food industry does not want to know about those studies and has actively tried to block the release of such studies in terms of showing that a healthier diet has a very profound influence on upregulation of positive genes and downregulation of negative genes uh, the negative effects um, versus fast food so we have a huge lobbying effort to prevent those sorts of that sort of information and getting out and actually doing those studies. Let's take the Harvard uh, researchers that pushed the that hid the sugar research and oh gosh, actually pushed yeah. the high fat research, right, to, right. to protect protect an industry. And you got lifestyle, and you know, having lived in Europe and having lived in Latin America, I have to say, Americans, we're freaking crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way we work, and I, I'm I'm at the top of the heap in terms of being a bad uh, you know lifestyle guy and just the amount of work that I do in a, any given day and then I don't stop I mm-hmm. usually work my weekends off as well life is really super busy but that is not the way to be a healthy person mm-hmm. you've got to have integration time you've got to have downtime our brains can't fu- it's it's like you're going to run your engine on high all day long you wouldn't right. do that to your car yeah right but we expect it from our bodies and from our minds and so there's a lifestyle mismatch with what is healthy or we think we're going to get rewarded for busting our asses and in fact what we're really doing is degrading our health yeah, no, completely. And sabotaging the very thing that you want is you generally want to be high performing. You want to perform well. 
and all these things. And by stretching yourself too thin, you're actually making your performance worse and making it more likely that you're going to experience negative outcomes later in, in whatever. Yeah. Um, so to bring, so back, so back to cannabis. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I love it though. Cause what I like about cannabis, um, is it's a doorway for a lot of people to get into these very critical topics. And that's why this podcast, I don't want to limit it to only talking about cannabis growing and extraction, all these things. While I do want to talk about those things, um, I want to get into the deeper concepts that cannabis is sort of a springboard for. Um, but that being said, um, coming back really directly to cannabis, what do you think are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have either about cannabis or the endocannabinoid system um, that you tend to encounter on a regular basis? Um, there's a couple, and I would say that they're both actually what I like to call black market hangovers. Mm -hmm. um, one is the idea that if we're going to use THC medicinally, that the requirement is that we get high from it. Really good point, yes. And I, I'd have to say nothing is further from the truth. Pharmacolo THC is pharmacologically active at doses that don't generate uh, mm -hmm. a high or euphoria. And uh, there may be a couple instances in, in severe pain or uh, cancer where you're actually, you really are dealing with uh, the central nervous system effects of THC. Right. But otherwise, there's many cases where that's just completely not necessary. And then the other one that just is driving me crazy, and, and it's definitely a black market hangover, is decarboxylation. Ah. This idea that we have to blow off CO2, that we have to... Got to activate. We got to activate, right. <laughs> and, you know, this, is, this has been shown. In fact, I've just compiled a list, um, working on a white paper right now, and I've just compiled a list of, of all the targets of acidic cannabinoids. Mm -hmm. And let me tell you, it's big, especially for yeah. CBDA. It's yeah, it's yeah. huge. Um, I, have a, I have a friend that was at UCSF for years, a uh, family nurse practitioner who handled uh, kids with intractable seizures. And what she did was uh, made sure that the uh, cannabis oil, the hemp oil that they were getting was uh, non-decarboxylated. Yeah. So she was using strictly CBDA. Mm -hmm. with with these kids and getting great results yeah yeah and so and also trip v1 which which by the way cbda binds mm -hmm. at at, high, at uh high affinity um is a target for seizures mm -hmm. so it turns out that cbd is still working um but cbda works really well too and so we do not have to decarboxylate everything and there's probably advantages to not decarboxylating in terms of bioavailability as well yeah, and, and man, that, that first point you brought up has been on my mind a lot lately, um, that you should not equate therapeutic response with, to, high. with the high. Yeah, um, just the higher you are doesn't mean you're getting more therapeutic response. And I think that's something that just takes people a while to um, catch on to, especially if they're really new to cannabis, because that's the main entry point is that they know that cannabis gets you high and it helps people and oh so i'm going to experience a high if i want to use cannabis therapeutically um yeah that's that's really really important for people to understand um there are so many things happening in your body that you're unaware of that you just can't perceive directly and yeah. um that's why it's really really important to um try to take that time to inventory 
yourself. I um, talked about it before. I'll talk about it probably every episode, but journaling when you're trying to um, treat yourself um, with any therapeutic agent, um, taking really careful notes about dosaging, when you're taking things, when what you're noticing day to day, even just really basic things. Monitor your pain levels if you're trying to treat pain on one to ten, and monitor that. You know, encouraging self awareness. Yeah, just trying to really critically evaluate your state of being, um, because yeah, a lot of these activities, other than the um, sort of euphoric effect of THC, most of these effects you're not going to feel not right away. Some in pain relief, if it's immediate joint aches or whatever, yeah, you might notice that, but. A lot of other stuff, it's something that builds over time as well with repeated dosaging, especially with cannabinoids or any lipophilic therapeutic agent. You're going to have that building up over time in your body. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'm really happy to hear you talk about that. I think that's really important for people to to recognize. And I'm sure there are some THC producers out there right now that are... Yeah, unhappy or, to or hear cursing that. at the radio or the or whatever their device is. I've already warned people that this podcast <laughs> um, it's going to get me hate from every angle, and that's how I assume I'm doing something right. I'm prepared for that, so um, that's fine. <laughs> you know, um, I just have to credit uh, Ethan Russo. I like the way Ethan says it about about THC and the, and the high, the euphoria. Uh, he says it, that if you're using uh, THC, cannabis, chemovar, THC, mm-hmm. uh, therapeutically, and, you've, and you're high, you're having an adverse event. Right. I mean, in um, any trials that are done with THC-rich cannabis, um, that is one of the adverse events that is monitored. Um, and and the, only, the only time I could see that being different is certain psychological conditions where you know the high may be part of the therapeutic response but other than that um no i mean unless you're using it recreationally yeah in which case you know fine that's fine yeah that's your prerogative to do um but don't don't confound um the recreation aspect of cannabis with the therapeutic aspect because um, they, they aren't always married together, although sometimes they are. Yeah. Um, so what do you hope to see as cannabis research continues and it's, it's picking up at a really fast rate if you're monitoring the papers that are being published? I mean, basically since last year, um, there's just been a huge increase in momentum Half a dozen to a dozen every week. Yeah, it's really wild. It's hard to keep up with. Yeah, um, it's a full-time job. It really is. It's something that, you know, I try to connect people with research papers as best I can and stay up on top of things as best I can. But, you know, I'm in a perpetual state of being behind and I'm realizing that's just the way it's <laughs> going to be because, you know, um, all this research is coming out. It's like I'm going to have to rely on really well-written review papers at this point to, yeah, to yeah. stay caught up. Um, but what would you like to see from the future of cannabis research and endocannabinoid research? A couple of things. Um, one thing that is super fascinating to me is looking at the new research on frontal striatal uh, connectivity in the brain mm. um, with CBD, with cannabidiol. Which, uh, So what I basically just said is synaptic patterning is strengthened or even put potentially becomes more complex 
Um, and I think that's super exciting. That's, I mean, we're talking now about not only protecting the brain, but we're also talking about making it more agile in a sense. Right. So that's super fascinating to me. But the other piece, and I think more basic, um, Greg Gerdeman is the scientist who discovered the retrograde signaling of, of cannabinoids. Yeah. And um, Greg basically just says it beautifully. He says something to the effect that there is a mountain of research showing neuroprotective effects of cannabinoids. And yet we have a scientific community that until very recently has been based on the negative effects of cannabinoids. And so, sure, any medicine, anything that's going to be medicine, whether it's a dietary supplement or a pharmaceutical drug, has potentially, a, 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 it's a double-edged sword, has potentially right. a negative side. Yeah. But the neuroprotective effects of cannabinoids are striking. Um, so I'd, I'd like to see more acknowledgement of that from the scientific community. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree. And broadly, man, I just want to see more healthcare professionals get educated yeah. on some of this stuff. Um, That's a really good point. Because man, it's I, yeah, it's you know, <laughs> it's very hard to find a doctor or even a nurse that understands much of this in any sophisticated way. And a lot of those that do operate in the cannabis space still don't have that um, in-depth of a understanding. Um, I've I've been pretty disappointed by by you know different different folks that I've talked to that are actively doing work with patients with cannabis um, that are still talking about indica and sativa um, as if it's. Uh, <sighs> A significant uh, model to use for finding um, right. different effects um, right. that things will have, or talking, or even talking about strains, and not recognizing that you can have different chemotypes among things that are labeled the same strain name. Um, cultivar names can be helpful in getting you pointed in the right direction towards certain things, but um, if you're just telling patients to use a certain strain of something to go to their dispensary and find some X strain to treat X condition, X Y condition, like you don't know what they're going to come back with. No, and that's just not um, not really an appropriate way forward. So it's I don't know. I hope I hope things get caught up quickly um, because our healthcare system needs it. I think to like really push this critical thinking about cannabis and, you know, getting back to the springboard effect, I think it will help um, healthcare professionals broadly start to open their minds a little bit about medicinal plants um, just across the board. And I hope to see that humility piece get cultivated. <laughs> yeah, you bring up, a, well, the humility piece is huge. And I, I, Unfortunately, don't see that changing, but I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, I lost what you just said before that. Uh, cannabis, what was it? Um, I was saying, um, hoping they have a better understanding and that springboards into um, broader acceptance of medicinal plants. Thanks. Yeah, that, that was a piece I was going to comment on. Yeah, so in, in regard to medicinal plants, I think that we need to realize that <clears throat> cannabis is just one medicinal plant and everybody's yeah, excited yeah. about that medicinal plant right now but that's my hope as well is that 
this idea that a medicinal plant that's a complex array of phytochemistry and phytonutrients has the potential to make a very meaningful therapeutic difference in the quality of people's lives. That, to me, is medicinal plants. And that's, for 30 years, that's what I've been focusing on, is medicinal plants. And, you know, I've had, I've had, I've made enemies in scientific institutions merely because of what I'm into. Yeah. And not because of my science, but because right. of the fact that I have an interest in medicinal plants. There is this bias in science against medicinal plants as if it's not real. And we need to stop and realize that about half of all of our drugs have been based on medicinal plants, and about 25% yeah. of all of our pharmacopoeia is, is still directly isolated from medicinal plants. Um, if you look at cancer drugs, something like 70% of them in the last 10 years have come from uh, natural products in some sort of way. So when physicians and healthcare providers look at me as, uh, you know, with a disapproving look that I'm into medicinal mm -hmm. yeah. plants, they don't understand their own pharmacopoeia that they're writing from daily. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah, I totally see that too. Um, well, and um, so you've been extremely generous with your time. I'm going to go ahead and start to wrap this up. Um, um, one of the last things that I wanted to ask you is, um, leaving cannabis aside for a second, um, what's at least one thing that you're super excited about um, that has nothing to do with cannabis? <laughs> um, I'm super excited about Lion's Mane right now. I've, I've had an opportunity Interesting. to yeah. to, um, to look at some of that research and recently wrote a review paper on it. And the hericinones and the irinocenes, mm -hmm. these diterpene derivatives yep. that aren't polysaccharides, that aren't beta-glucans. Everybody's excited about mushrooms and everybody thinks it's all about the beta-glucans. It's not. Um, they seem to have a pretty profound effect on things like Alzheimer's disease and mild cognitive impairment. And so I'm, I'm super interested in, in seeing that ex, um, therapeutically uh, harnessed to make a huge difference in the quality of aging people's lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lion's mane mushroom. I've got some dried out lion's mane in the in the cupboard now. Uh, something I'm very fascinated as well. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for coming on and talking to me. We'll have to uh, sit down again sometime and and pick up discussion. Um, I want to keep track of of your work and what you have going on, and um, I'm sure um, we'll have plenty to talk about again soon. I'm sure, Jason. Thank you. I, I love what you're doing here, and and uh, getting the word out is great. Thanks. Thank you very much. All right. If you want to learn more about Curious About Cannabis, you can go to CACpodcast.com or check out the Curious About Cannabis book available now on Amazon and other online retailers. Thanks and have a great day. Take it easy. If you want to learn more about cannabis, you can check out the Curious About Cannabis book available now on Amazon.com and other online book retailers. Curious About Cannabis podcast is presented by Natural Learning Enterprises, a science education company dedicated to the enhancement of public scientific literacy through education about the natural world. Curious About Cannabis is just one of several learning initiatives produced by Natural Learning Enterprises. To learn more, go to www.naturallearningenterprises.com or connect with NLE on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.